Hi, welcome to Wendy Says Things. Today I have on the show Tanya Floyd, who is a health and wellness practitioner. She comes from an indigenous lineage, and we're going to sit down and talk about generational trauma and interpersonal trauma and healing from these traumas um, over the next three parts of episode two. So thank you for joining us today, and we're going to talk with Tanya now. You know, I was thinking about how, how long I've known you, you know, it's been a we, while. right. We, we went to high school together, <laughs> Yes, but we didn't like hang out and I didn't really hang out with anyone in high school. I was working a lot, but when we reconnected, I want to say in, um, I think I was in Vermont, which would have been, you were in Vermont, you were in Vermont at the time. That was Facebook. Was and really I think start- it was right around whenever I first got on Facebook. Yeah. Facebook started kind of getting some traction among us older folks, I think around that time. So 2011. Well, I remember I was dating Dusty at the time. So it had to be somewhere between 2007 and nine. Yeah. Okay. Right. 2000. Yeah. I remember you did some, some long distance Reiki stuff. Yes, the long distance energy stuff. I did. I burnt out in Vermont with a lot of things that were going on. And I didn't know that was a thing until after it happened to me. And I'm like, <laughs> what's what's wrong here? But I guess I, apparently I overdid it. And then after I got in the accident and everything, my whole body was kind of messed up. And so I had to spend a lot of my time and effort into repairing um, all the broken things inside me physically and energetically. Yeah. 2007 to 2009. That's about right. I think we left there in 2011 and went to Ohio. Dusty. God. You know, he's the reason I didn't get into honors English. <laughs> oh my, <laughs> my freshman year in, um, at high school because we took the test in eighth grade we took the test in eighth grade and he was sitting in front of me during the test turning around and flirting with me the whole time <laughs> that sounds like dusty <laughs> and I was so distracted I was like ah yeah yeah <laughs> and so I'm like blushing really hard right now Yes, he was always very funny and very charming. Very funny and very charming. And um, I remember I got to freshman English, you know, and I was just in the regular class. And then the teacher was kind of like, why are you in this class? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's all Dusty's fault. He threw me off my game. I know. Like, what am I going to say? My friend, you know, like, well, some kid guy was flirting with me. <laughs> right (laughs) and then the history teacher I think said the same thing anyway they moved between those two teachers they moved me into the honors classes well see it all works out in the end (laughs) I suppose (laughs) so but you've been with Tim now yeah for yeah gosh we're going on this is our eighth year I think yeah I was so happy when you guys met Yes, I I really think that we met at the right time. We both agree that we had other things we had to process in our life before we were ready for the kind of relationship we have now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think some of us who from our generation who are doing this kind of work, um, you know, a great deal of the healing work and the the social work and the community work have came in and had to just everything thrown at us. You know, yeah. I think it's rare to find someone in our generation who's doing this kind of work who is like, oh yeah, you know, everything was great in my life and it just seemed natural to care about everyone deeply. <laughs> yes. No, and- no, they, I, I can't think of the exact quote right now, but there was something, there's something that says basically the people who have become great healers have suffered from great wounds, which led them to that process. It was much more eloquent, but you know, that's yeah, that's the kind of feeling that I'm getting. I remember the gist, not the specifics. That's that's plenty. The gist is all we need. <laughs> we need, I think, just to acknowledge the fact that, you know, there's a, a great and we feel alone. I think a lot of it. I know that for me, I felt like I was the only one who's really suffered this greatly. <laughs> well, when you're in the midst of suffering, you feel that way. In fact, um, this is kind of an aside, but I was having a conversation. There was a friend that had posted something about, she was trying to identify the motivation behind people who react so poorly to um, issues about racism. And she was wondering, you know, are they afraid of their power being taken away? Are they afraid that their experiences in life will be less valid or somehow invalidated by accepting it. And um, as we were having this conversation, I actually got a post, a reply on one of my posts that kind of went with it. And what it seemed to me is it's like they, those people are so caught up in their own suffering and own viewpoint of the world that to them, it, it somehow demeans their own experience of suffering to acknowledge that others are suffering. Ooh. And because the responses are always something along the lines of, oh, well, I was poor and I, you know, had was disadvantaged and, you know, they're, they're always talking about whatever their experience was and why why should they care about racism because they also grew up disadvantaged and were poor, not recognizing that racism and classism are both forms of prejudice and both are wrong. Right. Right. You can have both. You can have one, you can have none. It, it, it doesn't invalidate your experience to acknowledge and empathize with another's. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think sometimes you can get, blinded you're you're looking at your own suffering yes and if you're focused on your own suffering and what you've suffered and we touched I touched on this just a little bit um in the last episode where we're talking about if we can reframe our suffering yes if, if we can reframe our suffering as what can I learn from this how can I heal from this how can I move forward from this how can this these experiences make me a better person. How can they make me more sensitive? How can I stay yes. open in, in spite of it? Because I think that's the really difficult thing is that when you've suffered, you 
and everyone suffers to a degree and in various ways, when you suffer a loss, if you suffer from health issues, if you suffer from poverty, if you suffer from disenfranchisement, um, how do you remain open? Because you don't want to. Yes. Be protective and defensive um, because you're precious, right? Because yes. <laughs> because you're protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. And at some point, there are skills that I think we can adopt and learn that help us know when we to close and protect, to discern when that's necessary, because there's never going to be a time that you can just, I mean, I guess there is if you're a Buddha. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's the no, goal. I think just, I think oh, discernment is a real key but because to- I've talked to people before. I think that that's the, discernment is something that many people lack. They're either all open or all closed. Right. Instead of this learning to trust little by little. So if I give you some trust, I give you information about myself, or I tell you a story about my childhood and it's met with like, not kindness, not that you would do that, but let's say I told somebody Mm -hmm. who was not kind about something bad that happened to me and they were not kind about it. I'm not going to tell them more things. Yes. Because that's unsafe. They're not a safe person to talk about that with. They go, but I might be able to trust them to come pick me up from the store if my car broke down. Yeah. (laughs) There are different levels and layers. Yeah. And there's different types of trust. Like, so some people you don't talk about personal Mm -hmm. things with because it's not safe, but that doesn't mean they're completely untrustworthy in every aspect of their lives. And for trauma survivors, especially this all open, all closed and in, in some healing circles and some of the new age chakra things, we were talking about chakras a little bit ago before we got on air, this idea that your chakra should always be open, but no, <laughs> learning like pores of your skin close at times, sometimes it's perfectly fine. And in fact, a good idea to pull those chakras in. A little bit tighter, make sure they have a little bit of a filter in them, especially if you're going into a noisy or large crowded area with people's emotions are running high. So like people who are protesting, shielding. you have to shield yourself. Exactly. You put like your umbrella up. Shielding is different from being closed. Um, yes. Yes. I see what you're saying. I think when I, the way that I close mine or the way that I shield them is to put a button on them. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's closed, but it's not like not working. It's just, yeah. it's like, and that's, say, I guess I, when I, when I do it, I, I kind of shield my whole self, I do that all too. chakras and, and whatnot. And I, I do it every day, all the time. I'm an empath. If I didn't shield, I couldn't function in this world. <laughs> right. So, so some of what we're seeing as we were talking about before we got on here with the chakras is that these ancestor chakras that we have, like most people are fairly familiar with the main seven chakras. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more. <laughs> but there's a lot more. These I can't, I can't do that. There's um, the ancestor chakras are the ones where like they they're located at like hip level about halfway Mm -hmm. in from the center line of the body to the hips. And that's where you hold your, your parental energy. Mm -hmm. So someone like myself who has adopted, I have 
two layers on each side. Mm, so yes. I have to process out the energy imprint from my biological parents and the energy imprint left from my adopted folks. Yeah. And, you know, ideally, you know, if you get a, if you get adopted into a really good family, very healthy and loving, you know, any kind of genetic trauma that might come along might be in part negated by that. And in my case, that wasn't, that wasn't so Yeah, <laughs> you do it then perhaps have an <laughs> amplification of, of the problems that have to be solved. So yeah. So the two lines, two lines on each side and then up, um, you can see me, but of course, the yeah, at the shoulders, at the shoulders in I mean, again, where the pec muscles are, right, right. Where the pec muscles are about halfway in from the center line, from the out, from the shoulders is where your, where all of your ancestors, like the whole lineage, all the way back to the start of time. And, and I've gone really far into those chakras. <laughs> Well, and you know, what's interesting that you say that I had a, another gentleman who didn't even believe in chakras. He was very, very hardcore Christian, but when he was working on me, uh, doing some chiropractic treatment, he came and he laid his hands over my right shoulder and picked up, um, one of my ancestral wounds, which is in that area. Oh, and so it just goes to show that it's really something that transcends any one line of thought. It's a spiritual fact, whatever you want to call it. Right. And so, and then those four chakras, a line comes out from them and it meets out front of you about three to four feet, mm -hmm. two, two to three feet in front of you, just below where your heart chakra is, but above the solar, solar plexus. And, and it meets there. And that is, that is what you are sending out to the world. And so one of the problems that we have is we do all of the personal healing for our own personal self, but we are still insulated from the world with this filter between us. So if we mm -hmm. don't do the ancestor work, if we don't do the ancestor work, we are still going to have problems with our neighbors. Mm -hmm. We are still going to have problems in our interpersonal relationships yes. based on that. And so I think a lot of what we see <clears throat> is when we go out there is we don't necessarily understand how we perceive other people and yes. we talk about energy all the time. They say, oh. someone gave me the cold shoulder. The room was cold. Mm -hmm. You know, she's such a warm person. These are energy things. These are how people feel to us on an mm -hmm. energy level. And so without acknowledging this kind of, I want to say, I always Think of it as like an umbrella that's popped out directly mm -hmm. in front of you and that umbrella of who you are and who your ancestors were touches everybody before you even approach them mm -hmm. so this is, explains to some degree why someone you may never have met before um might just be like uh i don't like you <laughs> you know well and um I think it kind of ties into that. There's been a lot of talk in psychology even about the generational trauma and Native Americans especially have been starting to look at this concept and work on this concept of healing generational trauma. Yeah, the, you know, the guy wrote a book um, called It Didn't Start With You. Have you heard of it? 
not that one. Again, most of the ones I've seen have been more geared specifically towards natives and their thing. But I I remember looking it up and finding that it was something being talked about in, you know, top psychology magazines. Yeah. And, a- um, and I believe it's a real thing. And it, it ties into what we're talking about now that we do if we want to be truly whole, healing these generational wounds is an important part of that. It's necessary to move forward. This is part of, I think, the the problems that we're having, the issues in our society that are coming to the surface for everyone and into the awareness of people who, you know, perhaps had the luxury of not paying attention to it before. Yes. <laughs> um, to to kind of get it out on the table, to lance some of the wounds and let it, and let us take stock of it as a community. And so the, there's kind of a collective healing that has to take place, but there's also the interpersonal, like how, how does my generational trauma affect how I put myself out in the world? And what can I do to you know, kind of ease that. And as you said, there are resources or psychological resources, um, psychologists who are working with people on these issues, books that are out there that you can read. The one, um, it didn't start with you, talks about um, keywords. I've only read like the first four chapters and then I got stuck on the, on my thing, which my keyword was to ruin. I'm a ruiner, Tanya. Oh, ouch. And not only, not only do I say this about myself, but this is said about me all the time when things are going bad. So I may have to read that book and it sounds interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. So um, it's painful to recount the times that people have said that I have ruined their fill in the blank. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I've ruined. Well, the- you're saying that I was thinking of like my daughter uh-huh. who, you know, she gets into these periods where everything is my fault. <laughs> Oh. And I have, because when you just were talking about like ruining whatever, like I, that, that has been a thing. And um, it would be interesting to look at. I know in my life, there've been a couple of points that I had a hard time accepting. One was early on working with um, Carolyn Miss's book, Sacred Contracts. Oh and, yeah, that was a tough and, one. <laughs> um, the, the, the four archetypes that everyone has, like inner child, everybody knows they have an inner child. Right. Um, that's that you can accept that. Right. Um, everyone has an inner victim. We have all experienced that, you know, like when we were talking about yep. the suffering, we're the totally suffering. in that victim yes. sense. Then. Hard to connect it to our victim. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the saboteur, we have all at some point sabotaged oh, yeah. our own well-being yeah. by our actions or words. I could get that. And then they had the prostitute and I was like, oh. I am not a prostitute, darn it. <laughs> But as I started to think about it a little deeper, you know, I was stuck on the the negative sexual connotation of the word. And and really, if you think about it, though, any time you are quiet when something is going on that Mm. you think is wrong or, you know, when you sell out your own beliefs because you really need that job for money, even though you don't agree with what they're doing and that prostitution does not necessarily have to be anything sexual. It is more about when you degrade your own self-worth for some outside reason, right? For outside gain, not just reason, but for gain. 
Yes. Yes. And so then I was able to see and understand it in a completely different concept. It was just my own inner blockage with accepting that that word had a larger meaning than we currently prescribe to it. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And another time when I was going through the Enneagram, are you familiar with that? Oh, yes. Very. Yes. So I was going through the Enneagram (laughs) and I've always been a strong two, four. Okay. Um, Depending on the stages of my life, I go to different slide back and forth, but I think I'm really, I I think the two was really where I was ending up. I just kind of used a lot of the artistic stuff and, but I had a really hard time accepting that the two's weakness was pride because I was like, I am not a proud person. (laughs) I am the first to say it's my fault. It's my whatever. Um, Like I don't see myself as being a proud person person in but again I'm looking at these negative connotations of it and then I started thinking well but when I really am emotionally invested or passionate about a subject I can become very irate and even defensive and feel attacked when people attack that issue right and so in its own way that is pride it's I can't, I have to be able to maintain my calm and accept these negative statements without allowing it to affect my inner being. And is it a type of pride within me that allows me to let that bother me? Mm, I see. Yeah. I'm a six with a five wing. Uh. (laughs) I like talking about this stuff with people who get it. It it does make it easier when you don't have to explain the whole thing. So to, if you haven't looked at Enneagrams, I will, I'm sure put some links uh, to some resources on it. Enneagrams have really taken off recently. Um, But back uh, when I was really, there were not that many books on it. Maybe there were five good books at the library when I started um, delving into it. And I started delving into it because I actually, one of my uh, therapists I was seeing brought it up. Um, he brought up the Enneagrams in one session and I went home and you know, I think it was another week until I went and saw him again. And I had a dream and I went in after the, uh, to the second, to the next session. And I'm like, I'm a six. And he's like, how do you know? And I'm like, I had a dream and it said I was a six. <laughs> and then, you know, like it was like, after so then he's that, like, all right, take the test. <laughs> he gave me, well, he gave me a couple of books to read. And that was mm-hmm. like, there was a big chunk of a book that was the main there was like the main book on Enneagrams at the time because it was, it was between, it was when I lived on East Taylor street and Kokomo. So that would have been between 95 or 96. Uh, it was about the mid nineties. I started really getting into the Enneagram. It was ironic too, because it was actually a charismatic Catholic retreat that my mom and I went to, and they were completely working on Enneagrams and had this beautiful labyrinth that you could walk. And they were really very progressive. (laughs) That's super interesting. And the thing, so if you're not familiar with the Enneagrams, one of the things that was attractive about the, about them, as opposed to other kind of personality analysis is for me, is that it. And, and perhaps for you too, is that it's a sliding scale. So mm-hmm. the six is on the six, three, nine triad. So mm-hmm. I'm a little triangle. And so from six, if I'm, if I'm moving in a positive direction, mm-hmm. six is going to go 
up to nine. Mm -hmm. And to complete the circle of enlightenment, I'm going to hit three and then back to six. Mm -hmm. And then for, so the sliding scale of it means that if you're in a particularly tumultuous point of your life, you can tell, are you positive or negative by reading the positive negatives for each number on the yes. thing, where you are on your circle. Have you moved forward? And that none of us, you know, and the wings too, because it's not like we are all purely one thing or right? another. No, the wings we had, are. We had mentioned astrology and how, you know, you can't, the stuff in the, the newspaper is generic, but right. if you get into the deeper stuff, it's like, okay, this is the cornerstone, but then you layer all these different things affecting your emotional, your mental, your whatnot. Um, and so I think that it's, I always like when a uh, whatever the format may be, that it allows for the individualism, that we each, we're not just one thing. We have many layers to us and we do slide through different scales. And that's why I always tell people, it's not always about being fixed, but learning to recognize when you're going towards the negative, when you're going towards the positive, and how do you restore the negative and balance that within yourself? Right, because like nine, nine is the chameleon. And I can say without a doubt that the chameleon, that's where I've been for a while now. I'm like, I'm moving, mm -hmm. out, moving out of that now. <laughs> Got kicked into the, ne <laughs> the next one. Um, but the chameleon, and that's important. It's important because it's okay. Like looking back, it can be like, well, what have I been doing with my life? I've just been kind of keeping my head down and laying low and not drawing attention to myself. And that's fine because that's part of the journey for the six nine, three triad thing that I'm on. Mm -hmm. So, and I never looked forward to going forward to the third, to, to three, because three is where you get all caught up in yourself. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so three is kind of a delicate balance. To well, yeah. Well, you know, of course I'm the two, four, eight. And so I, I'm really comfortable with the twos and the fours. And ironically, the daughter that I, I clash with sometimes is a hardcore eight. Mm. And, and, but I resist that. And I think a lot of it is because many of the eights that I have known slide more towards the negative where they become more aggressive and bossy. And I don't want to come off that way. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but the thing, so there's a, there's a Muslim, there's an Islamic tale. It's a parable that I love. Mm -hmm. And it goes, there's a guy, he's shopping down at the, at the souk, you know, mm -hmm. and he looks up and he sees death and death sees him and starts to head over to him. And the guy freaks out. He, he drops what he was going to buy. He runs off he grabs a horse and he rides the horse all day and all night until he arrives in this other town and he gets to the town. He puts the horse up, you know, he's walking down the street. He's like, Oh my God, that was a close one. And he, he gets to the little market there and he's buying some fruit and he looks up and there's death <laughs> <laughs> and death was like, yeah, you know, I saw you earlier in the, at the other town and I was confused because we had an appointment here tonight. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, in, in many respects, we try to run away from our fate. You know, if we keep our head down, or like, I'll just move to Milwaukee and do some music and work my little corporate job and I'll be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. And then like, oh no, 
we've got we've got an appointment for you in Milwaukee that has well you know life is like Groundhog Day it seems like we come to the lessons we are meant to until we learn them and they can take different shapes and forms in different places with different people right Groundhog's Day is one of my favorite movies I I gave it away finally I gave it to somebody so they could watch it and never got it back so it's theirs now but um I used to watch it every year on Groundhog's Day (laughs) like my I'm not really big on holidays and tradition, but that was one that I did for for many, many years because the the meaning of it, it wasn't just enough that he won the heart of the girl. Yes. It wasn't enough that that he won her heart, but that he give himself fully over to the community and to yes. doing good and finding out what each person need, what they liked, and to care, to care, genuinely care about all of the people in his life that he came across. And he just lived that same day over and over and over again until he cared about them. And he mm-hmm. changed the tires for the old lady and he learned to play the piano. And then, then it time jumped forward again for him. And I think you're mm-hmm. right for COVID, especially for um, everybody's lives kind of slowing down and taking a different kind of sameness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a struggle uh, to do that. I know that when I first became a stay-at-home mom, because I worked when Alex was little, you know, I worked through most of my pregnancy and I, I worked when he was a baby, that one of the hardest things for me being a stay-at-home mom was just being at home all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Like all the time. You missed that adult conversation. I did. And it was just, you know, I read a Watch lot. Watch a movie that's not a cartoon. Right. And we had moved, we had moved from Bloomington to Kokomo. So I hadn't met any people and I didn't have a car. So it was very difficult to meet people. And I finally managed to um, make some friends there, but the, the sameness of it all. And especially as a trauma, you know, a complex trauma survivor, that's where everything kind of came up and said, Hey, you got to pay attention to us right now. And yes, with this COVID, what we're seeing are the results of that. You have to do something with that. Mm -hmm. Something's got to give. So it's a pressure cooker. Either you're going to sit down and do the work or you're going to lose your temper or you're going to be out of control in some other way, because these issues are coming to the surface. They are demanding a healing and an accounting. Yes. Well, you know, and as you're saying that, I was just thinking on a lot of the um, MMIW sites, you've seen a lot of things warning people about increases in domestic violence during COVID. Right. What does that acronym stand for? um, Missing and murdered Indigenous women. Right. Okay. But I thought, you know, that may be part of why the domestic violence has escalated because the issues that before you could take off and drive or go to the bar or go to a friend's or wherever they sought their refuge, you know, you can't go do that. So you're stuck dealing with it. Right. Can't get, can't access your coping mechanisms. So you have to find another way to cope or you have to deal with it. You have to at Mm -hmm. some point sit and be like, okay, this is garbage. And, and unfortunately not everybody wants to sit down and do that deep psychological work. No, and it's a pandemic. So it's stressful. So it's, you know, it's kind of like saying, okay, you're in a really stressful situation. So now you have to move this boulder. Yeah. You have a hammer go. It's like you have this one little tool, a giant boulder and, you know, a great big hill. 
<laughs> Go. But but you know one of the that that reminded me of the movie with um, Tim Robbins, Shawshank Redemption, I think it was, mm. where he has the tiny rock hammer, and it takes him years, but he eventually he does get out of the prison by that single rock hammer. It just took him several years to get right. through all the walls. And so, you know, the, it seems distressing, but, you know, a hammer will eventually remove a boulder. It just takes a lot more work. Yes, exactly. So it seems daunting. But for all you know, you get up there, you strike the boulder once and it already had a crack and maybe it got hit by lightning or something and the whole thing shatters. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is easy. Now it's in pieces. I'll just move it. Exactly. Um, so the, the daunting, like the, we build up, it's kind of like the project that you have, like, okay, I have this project and it's going to take me all this time and I don't want to do it. I know it's, it's actually maybe going to take me 15, 20 minutes, but it just seems so big and you can't get to it and you won't get to it and you don't get to it. And then when you do it, it's like, well, you feel overwhelmed and the procrastination kicks in. Right. And then when you do it, when you finally do it, it like took five minutes, but I have a theory about that because my theory is sometimes something like this. It, it started when I would forget something. I'd forget to go someplace or I'd forget to do something. I forget to take something with me, mm-hmm. let's say. And I'd be like, ah, oh, man, how could I forget that rookie mistake or whatever? And then because of the thing that was missing or the timing was off or because I forgot to take a step or whatever, something unique or, or interesting would always happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe I'd go into a place and be like, oh my gosh, I forgot this thing. And then the person standing behind me in line would give me a really great piece of like adjacent information. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, if I'd remembered the thing, I never would have got that information because I wouldn't have just said the thing to the stranger. Yeah. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I started seeing this kind of procrastinating. One of the studies I saw about procrastination says that the problem is not procrastination. The problem is that you are intelligent and you know how long that project is going to take you and when you have to have it done by. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you falsely tell yourself that you need three weeks to do the paper that's going to take you three hours to and that you should have it done three weeks ahead of time. But you know it's only going to take you three hours. So the very logical part of your brain and the I, maybe the more, oh, what's the word, more primitive Mm-hmm. you know, only put your energy towards the things that are going to keep you alive. It's going to be like, you don't need to do that right now. <laughs> you just, yeah. you just don't. So we're not going to put our energy and resources for that. We're going to do something that, that we can do something about right now. And that needs to happen. That it actually has priority and that you actually get better results. If you give yourself a more realistic goal, if you know, the paper is going to take you three hours set like the day before it's due three hours to do it. Mm-hmm. So you give yourself a little bit of wiggle room. And if you know that the research to write the three hour, the three hour paper is going to take you, you know, four days, you only need to start for, you know, really five days before the thing. So if you're trying to start at three weeks ahead of time, when you don't need to, you only actually need five days to get this paper done. But now mm-hmm. you've made it this big war inside your brain by mm-hmm. telling yourself you should have already started it. Now you have guilt and now you have problems. You won't start it on the, the day, five days before. Because it's, it's well, one of those quit shooting on yourself. Six. Right. Quit. You quit. Just like really assess what you, how much time you actually need to do and then make a date to do it on that, you know, on a specific day that is reasonable. It gives you enough time to like, if you have to go back and do something, it gives you a little bit of wiggle room and stop worrying that you didn't proactively do it three weeks ahead of time. You just didn't mm-hmm. need to. 
you didn't need to do it then. So you didn't do it because it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think there's this idea, who's the person who's actually doing the paper three weeks ahead of time? There's like maybe two people who will do that. <laughs> I'm not one of them. No, I'm not either. <laughs> so I, I actually, the stress about procrastination got to me so bad in college. I couldn't, I got to the point where I couldn't start a paper until the minute it was due. Yeah, I, I'm similar. Um, I mean, not that I have papers due anymore, but like, like oh. packing for trips. I always pack the night before now. I don't even bother. I mean, I might rake some lists of what I need, but there's no point in trying to pack early because I'm going to need those things or what, there's just always something. So I make a list and then just do it all the night before. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's all the time that you need to. Mm -hmm. So procrastination when it's a problem is when you actually are late with the thing, not because mm -hmm. you gave yourself just exactly the amount of time that you needed to get it done to do it. You know, that just makes sense. So yeah, I think you're right. If we took off some of this idea that we should be proactive about these things that really why, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, this kind of goes prioritizing, along, right. With saying no, I spent a whole year practicing saying no to things. It was really hard. Yeah. I was really bad at it. And it came out awful when I would tell people things, you know, well, and I think that's something that a lot of helpers have trouble with is saying no to people. Yes. And we have to recognize that we need to keep ourselves whole and you can't say yes to everyone because then you deplete your energy and you are less capable in all of those situations then. Right. You have right. to fill the well. Right. Fill the well. And you can't do it if you're trying to do everything for everybody else. And I... <laughs> I was so bad at it when I started to set these boundaries, but I made a kind of vow to myself that I would only say yes to things I thought I could do that I wanted mm -hmm. to do. And that if I said yes, I couldn't pull out. I had to make myself do it. And Consistency, follow through. Right. So follow through. And so it ended up like when I was turned things down, I was so abrupt about it the beginning because I was so bad at it I didn't know the words you to just had to like be like no nope you're not going to talk me into it yeah you know I would say things they'd be like can, can you do this and I'm like no that's not going to happen like, no I'm not doing that <laughs> and then people would get really upset by upset with this you know they'd be like oh I wish I could say that and then I'm like well you can yeah oh no I can and I'm like nope and so like I I did I drew boundaries you know I I I did my best. And eventually I got more gracious about it. You know, the graciousness came later, but in the beginning it was like, it's better just to do the thing and learn the skill as you're doing it. Mm -hmm. and people are going to be like miffed, but you know, if you go around never doing the things that you need to do, because it might upset someone, you'll never get the things done that need to be, that need to happen. Yes. And we have a lot kind of collectively that needs to, that needs to happen that needs to get done you know we need to reevaluate our society absolutely i think that a lot of the the key issues that keep coming up um you know we like we had said before you know the um the child abuse slash human trafficking issue um, you know, a lot of racial issues have been coming up. And a lot of these things are sort of systemic. Coming out on 
part two of episode two, Tanya and I will dig a little bit deeper into some of these issues and some of the systemic problems that are facing us and how we can maybe start to overcome those. Thank you for tuning in today at Wendy Says Things and see you next week. Bye.